when I think of my quilts, I think there's like so much, especially around like women working with textiles, you know, people talking about softness and, and political soft power and these sorts of things. And I realized recently as I was sort of turning that word softness over and over in my mouth, I was thinking, I don't like that word. That word doesn't work for me. And I was thinking, you know what word does work for me? Sturdiness. My quilts aren't soft. My quilts are sturdy. They are really enduring. That's something different that quilts give. You're listening to Seamside, where we explore the inner work of textiles. I'm your host, Zach Foster, and each episode I sit down and sew with a different artist, and we talk about what working with cloth has taught us about being human. I hope you enjoy. Before we jump into this conversation, just a quick word of thanks to the good folks over at the Quilty Nook. Without your support and encouragement, projects like this wouldn't be possible. Y'all know how much I love reading your reviews, and I do read every one of them. Listen to this one from EJ Earn, who says, Seamside is a great balance of casual conversation and philosophical depth. Zach's guests are family And we as listeners are family too, not because we're blood, but because we're invited into his studio, into his discussion, and he treats us as such. So if you're enjoying these conversations and you feel like family like E.J. Hearn, why don't you leave me a review if you haven't done so already? It is the best way for folks to find out exactly what's happening here in this little corner of the internet. Are you starting to dream about warmer days ahead like I am? Let me tell you what's happening this June. For the first time ever, me and my good friend Heidi Parks are going to be co-teaching a class at Madeline Island School of the Arts on an island in the middle of Lake Superior. The course is called Sewing in Place, and we're going to explore together how you can incorporate landscape and experiences while you travel into textiles. This is something both Heidi and I love to do. So if that sounds good to you, and you like the idea of going on hikes in your free time, watching the water lap up on the beaches, you might want to join us. I'll put a link down in the show notes for more information, and of course, if you got more questions, you know where to find me. Many Hands Make a Quilt. That's the title of Jess Bailey's book on short histories of radical quilting, and it tells you so much about what you need to know about our next guest. Known to many as public library quilts, Jess seeks to keep stories and quilts together, and sees quilts not only as objects of comfort, but also historical documents that recount stories that don't often get recorded in the written form. We talk about the importance of representation and being seen in the quilting community, the power of the gifted quilt, and how to get a foothold in the quilting world even if you don't have a lineage of quilters in your family. I hope you enjoy. Jess, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me, Zach. It's really nice to be here with you. I feel like we've been waiting a long time to have this conversation, so this this really is a treat. I know. I, I feel that too. Jess, can you tell us a little bit about where you are right now, just so folks listening can have an idea of What's going on in your little corner of the world? Yeah, well, I see your face on my computer screen, and it's right in between what I feel like is a good summary of my life, which is half of my desk is piled in 
research notes and books and dissertation materials and my glasses and library cards. And the other half of my desk is also a mess, but covered in fabric and a sewing machine and um, fabric samples and quilt notes. Um, and I'm sitting in my home office in London. It's a really beautiful, sunny day today here. Um, and I've got a quilt on my lap that I'm working on. Jess, you are a person of multiple worlds, but two big ones, it sounds like. The, the history writing and the quilting, which is what we'll be getting into today together. Yes, it's true. It's true. Those are um, those things I think equally have my love right now. As they should. What do you what do you bring to work on today? I brought a quilt that um, that is a little bit of a secret, but it's going to be out and about in the world in April when this podcast is released. So I can say that it is a wedding quilt um, for friends who are getting married here in London. And um, the pattern I chose is I was, you know, I was looking a lot at like historical wedding quilts. And of course, everybody knows, you know, the double ring wedding quilt um, folk block that's so storied. Um, that was the, the style of quilt that my great aunts made my parents when they got married. But I was looking at it, you know, and I was just not feeling like it was quite this couple's style. So I did some research on sort of other folk blocks that, you know, have names and traditions related to love and found a block that I really liked. Um, in um, in an old quilt history book that's actually called the Romance of the Patchwork Quilt, so I, I felt that uh, that carried a lot of goodness for them. So this is a lover's knot block um, that I put together, and I'm just doing the um, the hand quilting on the top today. And we'll put images of that in the in the show notes for folks who want to really get that complete picture. I'm sitting here also finishing a quilt. This is the first in my homecoming series it's three quilts and so this quilt represents the excitement of leaving home for new york city back in 2008 so it has lots of bright colors it has orange acrylic yarn ties that are kind of fireworky and i'm just i'm putting on the binding <laughs> the way mamma used to do it which is just folded over from the back to the front oh nice nice no fuss use what you exactly. got exactly exactly right there so Jess, when I first met you, I didn't even know your name. I just knew you were public library quilts. And then come to hear the story about it. I said, well, that makes a lot of sense. Could you share that with us? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, gosh, there's nothing I like more than a public library. They're really, uh, they're really good places, aren't they? They, I think they're such, uh, such radical and loving places in a community. I mean, where else can you go and be safe and have access to knowledge and books and community and representation and visibility um, for free. Um, and so I, you know, grew up being taken to my local public libraries. And when I started to make quilts, I was thinking about the different ways that I was exposed to quilts and quilting as a child and realized that the first quilt exhibition that I saw as a child was in my local public library. Um, and I think when I saw it, I have these vivid memories of it. Um, and when I saw it, I'm sure I didn't, you know, consciously put these things together so much, but now that I think back on it, libraries make so much sense as a place to hang quilts up, right? And display quilts. And there's something so magnetic about how 
a book tells a story and how a quilt tells a story. And those two things, I think, make each other richer. Um, and so, yeah, so somehow public library quilts um, came to be out of that memory of words and quilts doing work together in a space where everyone, you know, was welcome. From your mouth to God's ears. That's beautiful. <laughs> so you, uh, by day, are an art historian. Mm. By night, you're a quilter. I am. I know. Like, that, that sounds so exciting. <laughs> it does it? to me. Because what we're talking about, or what your life is pointing at, is the importance of stories. So why are you choosing to yes. devote your life to stories, both in, under the umbrella of art history, but under this other umbrella of quilt, quilt history? quotes in general mm, yeah I think I mean I, I was very fortunate to grow up in a household that was full of visual culture and art making and you know conversation about that um, but I think I come back again and again to telling stories about art and telling stories about visual culture specifically because I think there's part of me that is just a little suspicious about how much we put textual authority on a pedestal when we think about storytelling. And I say that with all the irony of someone who loves to write. I love words. I, I love telling stories with words. But I think art history is a fascinating discipline that is entangled with this, this issue because Art history is always about putting words to images and to tell a story about visual culture where we're describing in words, in textual language, visual rhetoric. And that's such a paradox. And, you know, it's like pinning the butterfly to the specimen board. There's something about it that just doesn't make sense, but you keep doing it in order to try and understand um, how people communicate with each other and that there are a hundred different ways to tell stories or to communicate with someone beyond words or text. And I think that's so important if we're also thinking about whose authority matters in history telling, whose um, position of power matters when we write history. Um, and I find images really productively shake that up. And Often, often that's about what, what cannot be spoken for whatever reason, then it cannot be spoken. Um, someone puts it in art, in visual art. And so there's something about that that I find really fascinating. To me, it feels like the visual can be a shortcut. There's two routes to a story, right? There's the textual route and there's the visual route. And the visual route is always faster, right? Um, it might not take us along the same path. Like what text is really good at is it takes us step by step, hand in hand. We walk together. We read one sentence, then we read the next sentence, and we all arrive to the end of that paragraph. Whereas with the visual image, you're just thrown in the deep end of that pool and asked to have some kind of a response. Yeah. And I, I experienced that just this morning. You came across these images from Yannickan Smucker, who is researching the New Deal right now and various work programs that were in place. And these are black and white images of people at a quilting bee. And in those particular set of images are 
uh, white quilters standing right beside black quilters. You have scattered throughout the crowd some male body quilters. And I've never been one to really pump myself up as like a, a male quilter. I mean, obviously the world sees who I am. You know what I mean? But I don't, I'm not one to use the hashtags. But all that said, it doesn't mean that when I saw those photos this morning of men quilting and those New Deal quilting bees, that something very deep inside of me didn't feel seen. Mm. I felt recognized. I felt like, oh, I am part of a lineage, right? That my grandfathers, not literally, metaphorically, but my grandfathers also yeah. quilted. Maybe not as often as my grandmothers, but back in the tree, there were mm. men, male body people like yeah. me who found these things interesting and dedicated their, their free time to it. And that was a beautiful and powerful moment for me. Isn't it so fascinating how images can make people arrive or ask people, because I think images ask so much from us, right? Like what you're saying, they, they throw us into this deep end of someone else's constellation, someone else's set of reference points, um, someone else's language. And sometimes they don't give us a lot of help, but in asking so much from us, I think they make us quite vulnerable. And then we have to say, oh, wow, what, what have I stepped into now that I'm looking at all these black and white photographs and looking at this gender diversity in these photographs? And, and what am I seeing and taking in that maybe if someone had said, you know, something about men quilting or men also quilt, I don't know, you would have perhaps, maybe someone would have jumped to a conclusion about what that means or what that means for someone else. And I think, oh, I just, I had so much joy when I saw those those photographs because I have a lot of friends who are men or who use he pronouns and they quilt and I couldn't imagine my community without them. Yeah. Because I know, I mean, this gray, rainy Friday, I want to be sitting around thinking about that one dude standing up at the quilting frame. Yeah. And he's tying a quilt just like you're doing right now. Yeah. And he's looking at the camera. He is looking at the camera. Yeah. Oh, he knows. He knows. He's looking majestic in that photograph. I love it so much. So representation matters. I know we'll get into that. But representation of all kinds. I mean, folks need to look into whatever space, whatever arena they're interested in, in this case, quilting for us, folks need to be able to look into the mm -hmm. quilting tent and find somebody like them somewhere. They do. Mm -hmm. They do. Mm -hmm. I think I, I was having this great conversation with a friend of mine um, who's an art historian when I first started sharing um, things on public library quilts and um, Kilani Polzak, she's an incredible art historian in California. Um, her work's amazing. Go look her up. She was telling me, you know, Jess, because I was like having a little meltdown, I think, about how stressed I was about my dissertation and what was I doing and what stories was I telling. And and she said, you know, it's we can talk about visibility and representation and, and we can talk about writing history to fill a gap, right? You know, a story hasn't been told, a story hasn't been kept safe in the way that it deserves to be. And there, there's a gap on the shelf and you're going to fill that gap. And that's beautiful. And that's important. But she was also like, just like half the work is stepping back and asking, well, why does the gap exist? And 
that's like the really gritty work of telling stories, I think, is, is being able to step back and say, why are we telling this story right now? Why haven't we told this story before? Um, why hasn't this thing or this person or this way of being in the world been visible? Um, and so what structures about how we tell stories can we change um, so that we don't just fill a gap and have another gap, you know, grow, you know, it's, it's we, um, yeah, I think a visual and textual, we gotta have more conversations about how we're telling stories. This seems to me like a good time to chat a little bit about mini hands. Tell us a little bit about that for folks that aren't familiar. Absolutely. Last year, I wrote a short, um, very short book, lovingly called a zine, a pamphlet, whatever you want to call it, um, about quilt history. And I was just having so many good conversations with people. I think in that same conversation with Kehlani, she um, is from Hawaii, and she told me about a quilt that I think captures a lot of what made me want to write Many Hands Make a Quilt, which is that she told me this um, story that when the last indigenous queen of Hawaii was under house arrest, she decided to make a quilt. And this is at the end of the 19th century, right? So crazy quilts are all the rage. You know, all the wealthy women are using all the scraps of fabric they have from the new, you know, mill production of, of more elaborate uh, fabrics being available. They're using these fabrics to make these just kaleidoscope quilts, right? And... The last queen of Hawaii is, you know, faced with this horrendous occupation by the U.S. government. And she decides to make a quilt. And she makes a crazy quilt from, you know, her clothes, her very elaborate, beautiful dresses, right? I mean, this is like a woman living at the height of, you know, late 19th century fashion. The photographs of her are incredible. And she makes this crazy quilt. And on the surface of the quilt, she starts to record in real time the onslaught of U.S. colonialism um, to her nation, to her people, to her land. And some of the observations on the quilt are, are really tender. There are things about her garden outside changing. You know, she loves her garden and she can't go down into her garden, right? And then other things are about her political allies and people betraying her and choosing power and money and land over care and sovereignty and indigeneity. And it's this beautiful historical record. It becomes this archive, right, of her experience losing her land. When I heard this story and saw photos of this quilt, the quilt is still on display um, in Hawaii. I just thought, oh, we we got to center again this way that quilts can be archives in and of themselves, whether that's at the kind of material substrate level of, of how quilts tell stories by what fabric you choose to include in them, or at a more kind of figural level or stylistic level or textual level even with what words you add to the surface of a quilt there's so many ways that a quilt can accumulate those stories right and I felt that there was a lot of these stories that 
I was having the privilege of hearing either from friends who were historians or who had this lived experience or just stories that I grew up hearing about quilts. Um, you know, like I grew up right outside of San Francisco and California. So I grew up knowing about the AIDS quilt, right? Because it was just part of the fabric of life in San Francisco. And so I felt that there was a kind of a reverberation in quilt stories that was really about two things, about communities coming together and making quilts, and also about social justice. And I felt that I just, I wanted a place where at least a set of those stories could kind of exist for people to to sit with that richness of this legacy. And so many hands, you know, I really hope that the stories of quilts, of community quilts, of activism quilts, of quilts as protest, quilts of care, that those quilt stories, I hope there's, I hope when people read it, there's one in there that you just really love and identify with and think, oh, this is the best thing under the sun. Look at this quilt. Look at this story. And then I also hope that there's a story in there that challenges you, that you're like, oh, wow, I wouldn't have, wouldn't have thought a quilt could be that. Or I wouldn't have thought that that dimension of social justice was something that interested me or something I wanted to learn more about. And so, yeah, I hope it's just a kind of joyful offering of how quilts both provoke us and comfort us. Jess, that's, that's incredible work. That's incredible work. Where can folks find a copy of that if they would like to take a look? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You can find it um, directly from the small grassroots publisher who I adore called Common Threads Press. Um, and you can also find it in the U.S. Um, Common Threads Press ships anywhere, but you can also find it um, through Tatter Blue Library. And those of you who have purchased copies for your own public library and told me that, um, you've absolutely made my day. So thank you. Oh, that's incredible. That's incredible. I think I think Many Hands for me is also about kind of I I started quilting really during the pandemic and isolation in the pandemic and I just moved to a new country you know I started the Instagram and I didn't really have any particular ambitions for public library quilts I just wanted a kind of joyful space you know where I could connect with people and share this thing that was giving me a lot of joy I think when you really care about something there's always that moment right where you you find yourself stepping back and thinking and trying to think really honestly of like well I really care about this and I really care about this community. What can I give to it? Like, what do I have to offer? And I started realizing that a lot of the quilt history books out there are out of print. A lot of the best ones, you know, were somehow self-published, right? I mean, quilters have really, quilters are stubborn people. They get it out there. If they want to get it out there, they're amazing. But some of those books, you know, haven't been republished and are hard to find or they're expensive. And I just thought, gosh, okay, you know, I'm an art historian. I spend my days writing about visual culture, you know, mostly for a very academic audience, a very research focused audience. But I really felt that, okay, maybe a small thing I can give back to this community is a really affordable, really joyfully accessible set of histories that we want to be spoken about in our homes, with our friends, at Quilting Bees, you know. So I I hope that's what Many Hands is. I'm sure it is. That's a beautiful intention. Speaking of Quilting Bees, I want to tell you a story, then get your take on it. Because it speaks to how 
the historical roots, or at least how we envision the historical roots of quilts, has changed over time. Because a few months ago, I was doing softball with my friend Heidi Parks and Luke Haynes, you know, and this is a monthly conversation we have about all things quilty. And there were, you know, we were in the Zoom room with like 100 quilters. And I told folks that I was interested in hosting a real live quilting bee. You know, like I want the frame, I want the quilt, I want to sit around the frame together, I want food, I want music, I want the whole nine yards. So I said, because I've never <laughs> been to one, I'm like, I want to, I need to start doing some research. Mm-hmm. I need to see what a quilting bee is. And so I said, hey, folks out there in the Zoom room, let me know if you've ever been to a quilting yeah. bee because I want to talk to you. Silence. In a room of a hundred quilters. <laughs> The closest we got was, oh, my mom has been to one, my aunt yeah, yeah, has been yeah. to one. And so we have this idea of quilting as, the, it's, it's, a, it's a very communal symbol for Americans especially, right? The idea of a community coming together to work on this quilt. So we've taken this symbol and now we've reduced it to a largely individual act. One person, for the most part, makes that quilt from beginning to end. So how do you view that as someone who has studied the scope of quilt history over the decades? I think it's really interestingly entangled with what is a very recent phenomenon, which is and a very Western or European phenomenon, which is our association of an artist as a single individual entity. And the art that I actually study for my research career and my art historical work is all pre-modern art. It's all medieval art. And so we're speaking about workshop scenarios, right, where people are making together. Um, You know, the art that I study mostly is very seldom made by one person. Um, And so for me, like, I, I actually rarely think with the artist as like a singular capital A, you know, this is the vision, this is the individual. And I think part of why I'm so interested in quilts is because they seem to be a modern thing that has the potential to defy that. And the potential to break that box that we've kind of gotten ourselves into in thinking about artists as very, very much an individual that we put on a pedestal. But I think you're very right that there is this fracture, you know, and I, I think about it also in terms of like, well, my, my quilting great aunts, you know, they didn't, it doesn't seem like there's a clean line in my family between them quilting, them making, you know, my parents a wedding quilt, me a birth quilt, you know, clearly they were making everybody quilts and then me as the next generation in that family to pick up a quilt there doesn't seem to be people in between us and but then I then I think about it as well maybe you have to think more creatively about how these things pass and like my father for example is an artist and as a child he would always be making me patchwork nylon kites and we would go fly these kites on the coast. And I didn't think about it until recently. I was like, Oh, like I grew up with him. Like he learned how to sew from his mother, my grandmother, who also taught me how to sew. And she was very, and she was very ahead of her time for sort of gender roles. And she was like, every man needs to know how to sew. Like, this is ridiculous. Like, you know, like 
And so she taught all her sons how to sew and, and he would make these, you know, he'd sew pieces of nylon together to make these kites. And so I feel like maybe if, if we're thinking about recovery and traditions and we need to think less about broken lines and more about creative exchanges. But I think the quilting bee is fascinating to me because I think something that I noticed when I was reading about this too was that my sense is that often the, the traditional quilting bee was about coming together to get a quilt done for someone that you were going to give that quilt to, right? And so I wonder if like we need to, in reviving the quilting bee, re- be speaking really explicitly about gifting and quilts and what it means to put so much labor and love and time and energy into a quilt that is not yours. And I think that's a really powerful invitation from those quilting bees. But I wonder if we need to be more explicit about thinking about that and like giving quilts and gifting quilts and and what it means to come together and, and say, we got to get this quilt done because so-and-so needs this quilt. And for that to work at its best, at its most effective, we got to think of ways in which community-made quilts do something more than just keep somebody warm. Because if we're just trying to keep somebody warm, we can go to the big box store and we can buy them something cheap and they'll stay warm. So in what what do we what is it about quilts? What special offering is it that quilts bring? And what special offering do community built quilts bring? And how can we really work with that energy? Oh, I like that. And I, I don't think it's for nothing that our our the little pods of people that still get together to this day are called guilds, right? In the tradition with craft guilds, whether it was a basketry guild or a blacksmithing guild or a leatherworking guild, people in that guild wouldn't sign their name. They might have like a guild marker of some kind, right? Saying that this is an improved piece made by this guild to certain exacting standards, but nobody was signing it. And so quilts, I think, for a long time in our uh, creative landscape have kind of remained, they, they remain in that space in a way that perhaps other crafts don't. Yeah, yeah. What do you want to show us? I see you just hopped up and grabbed the book. I know. you. I, I just ran away to get a book and I came back because this is, this is how I communicate. So I could go get a book. Um, I was trying to think of the last person that I spoke to that actually could tell me a story of being at a quilting bee was my friend Anna, who's coming over for dinner tomorrow night, actually. She's a pastry chef here in London. Um, she works at the River Cafe. And she gave me a book that her mother made at the end of her life called The Edge of Land. And it's a book about her mother's um, quilts and specifically quilting bee space that she created in their home every Wednesday um, in Scotland, and then also um, at an art center. The little self-published book um, that she made at the end of her life just has beautiful documentation of just everything you're saying, recipes, right? Like food um, that they cooked and ate at these quilting bees. And here's, you know, beautiful photograph of women dying together and cooking together. And it's really been 
been on my mind, this book and this this generosity of my friend to share her mother's art and her mother's words at the end of her life with me in this self-published book, because I feel like what comes through in the book is is how much generosity this woman clearly had for creating that space for community and everyone coming together every Wednesday to take that time. And I think, yeah, that just, it it comes back to this. Well, like you're saying, what, what are you giving in a quilt? What are you giving when you create the space to make a quilt? And I think for me, when I think of my quilts, I think there's like so much, especially around like women working with textiles, you know, people talking about softness and soft power and, and political soft power and these sorts of things. And and I realized recently that as I was sort of turning that word softness over and over in my mouth, I was thinking, I don't like that word. That word doesn't work for me. And I was thinking, you know what word does work for me? Sturdiness. My quilts aren't soft. My quilts are sturdy. They're really enduring. And that's something different, I think, that quilts give. Yeah, I love that reframing because when we talk about softness, we can just feel it. We have an immediate reaction. That's a beautiful thing. Yeah. But when you say sturdiness, it implies that a thing is well made. And for something to be well made, you didn't just whip it up on the fly. You didn't invent the craft yourself. You're standing on the shoulders of giants who perfected the techniques over time. There's a lot in that word sturdy. There is. There is. I feel the power. That's good. Let's sit with another minute, if you don't mind, around the idea of gift and how that how that works in the quilting community. Because I don't know if you've had the chance to hear Seamside with Jennifer Mao, who is a weaver in Brooklyn. Oh, I have. Oh, she's a she's good a soul. soul. We, she and I talk a lot about um, money, commerce, economy, capitalism, and ultimately gift and gift exchange in terms of quilts and textiles. What does it add to a quilt when it's given as opposed to sold? Mm. I love that when I'm gifting a quilt, I know from the moment I start making it that I'm gifting the quilt, right? Like, and that completely changes my relationship with the quilt because I know it's not mine in like the most beautiful full sense of that it never feels like mine and people always ask me like oh that one's so beautiful don't you want to keep it oh you know how do you let that one go and it's like no from the moment the very first moment it's not it's not mine I made a quilt recently for a friend who has a small clothing company uh, just outside London and she makes beautiful mostly linen dresses and women's clothing she wanted one of my quilts and I loved her clothes and we got talking and, and we thought, well, gosh, you know, let's, let's do a trade where um, I make you a full bed quilt and you make me a wardrobe of clothing. And she makes her, her clothes from really beautiful, often dead stock linen. And so, you know, I asked her, well, what what do you want, you know, this quilt to mean? What do you, what do you want? Um, What story are we embedding in this quilt? And she said, you know, I'd I'd really like it to be a quilt about motherhood and its imperfections and the messy days and the good days. And and I want to, she has a young daughter and she she was like, I want to be able to give this quilt to my daughter 
and you know and and have it kind of capture a moment in our life together a kind of transition moment in her life and and reflect kind of her her collections of clothing that she's making and so we took a bunch of scraps from her studio and took all those bits of linen that she's made you know these beautiful clothes for often for people that she knows really well and cares for it's very very small production and made her a quilt out of those and it's great because when you look at the quilt you can be like oh that's those are those ginger linen dresses oh those are that you know that pair of pants you made oh you know and, and that's all in the surface of that quilt I loved that there was an intimacy in the very material substrate of that quilt that I knew what was being made for me and gifted to me as I made that for her and how wonderful to sit in a dress your friend has sewn while you make a quilt for her with the scraps from the dress. I mean, it was a kind of a rare moment of something. It felt like something was being made together. Yeah, because I recognize the desire to want to keep a quilt because we have made these things and they are so beautiful and they speak to something personal within us. But I got I find myself having to remember, one, I only need so many quilts in my home, right? They, they're bulky objects. They add up fast. <laughs> But two, owning a thing doesn't make it more beautiful and giving away doesn't make it less beautiful, right? It's still a beautiful thing. You're not changing that. You're just giving a new home. No. And it's also like, I feel like sometimes I'm like, I, I already spent so much time with this quilt. I spent hours with this quilt. And there's nothing that brings me more joy than when my friends send me photos of, you know, their baby on this quilt or, you know, their dog sleeping on this quilt. It's the best thing to see quilts used. I that's really important to me. I, I, I don't I don't dream of like a flat wall in a museum for my quilts. I, I dream of, you know, babies throwing up on them and, you know, life getting messy on them and like, you know, that I think I think you're letting go of any kind of preciousness when you give a quilt. You know, you're you're letting it be what it needs to be for the people who are gonna be held. Yeah, because while we got to make a livelihood, that's not everything. That's not everything. No. And it, it makes me think that I recently had the, the opportunity to go down to Foxfire in Rabin County, Georgia. And Foxfire is mm. a center for Appalachian culture, Southern Appalachian specifically. And they're trying to preserve all kinds of knowledge, stories, life ways, traditions around Southern Appalachia. And one of the, one of the, saints the canon saints of foxfire <laughs> is a woman named mary carpenter who died in the 70s to give you a frame of reference and we don't know at least i don't think we know how many quilts she made in her lifetime but i was just reading last night in a passage where she said and given one particular winter she made 23 quilts and gave them all away wow so over the course of her life who knows how many quilts she gave away but as she got older she lost use of one of her arms. Her eyes were starting to go bad. She couldn't sew. And it was, that was a source of challenge for her because she was such a generous person. She says, I can't make quilts anymore. I can't do this. I can't do that. But I can still love. I can still love you. You come to my house. I can still love you. Mm. I can still sit with you. I can still mm. talk with you. I can still ask you about mm -hmm. your day. And to me, it seems that that's so much the, the engine of quilt making is the desire to express love, the desire to say, I want you to have an easier life, at least in this one, at least as much as I have control in this one moment. I want that for you. That seems to me to be the a, a major source of um, 
creative energy when it comes to quilt making. Oh, I, I love that because I think I really feel that because I think there's something to me about I think what I want to say is like the tenderness of quilts in that they they are about holding someone and tenderness as in like tenderness when you're bruised or tenderness when you feel hurt or tenderness when someone knows the way that you want to be loved. And I think there's something about how quilts conform to the shape of someone's body, how quilts have that weight that, you know can calm you when you're anxious like there's that kind of tenderness is what I want to give to people that I love and it feels like I can do that in some small way by giving someone a quilt and I guess that's what I was talking about a few minutes ago when I said it's beautiful and communities come together to make these quilts and for them to be at their best they have to be something they have to be for something more than just keeping people warm Anybody, any blanket can keep you warm, but what is the magic power behind a quilt? And to me, you hinted at that a moment ago, and I would love to hear more thoughts on this. When you were sitting down with your friend, who's the pastry chef, and you said, what do you want this quilt to mean? I think that's such a beautiful starting point for a conversation about a quilt project. What do you want this to mean? What story do you want it to tell? What power, what function do you want it to have? What space do you want to occupy in your life? And I know that when I'm working with memory quilts, especially, I'll if I had that kind of relationship with the person, I'll ask them. I'm like, what are your hopes for this memory quilt? You know, and you would think the answer is fairly stock, but it's not. You know, people have very specific, it gives me chills to think of one in particular. I was talking to one person who said, I want to make this quilt so my mom will finally rest in peace. I said, ooh, that's a lot. That's more than just story keeping. That's like, this quilt has a spiritual function. And so knowing that as the maker, I was like, I can do that. I can, I, I can, I can, I can stay in tune. I can listen to the fabric as I'm working and I will do my best to put that function in there for you. Mm-hmm. So when you're talking about this with, with the friend that you just mentioned, or perhaps other people, what do you want this quilt to mean? I really want my quilts to be portraits of their people I really want my quilts to make people feel seen like that's that is the best thing that I think um I could give someone that I love and I recently made my first memory quilt for a friend who lost a a family member and a really close friend um And when I approached her about, you know, this offering, I was like, can I do this for you? You know, no pressure if it's not, you know, what you want. And she said, no, I'd really like you to do this, but um, don't make the quilt for me. You need to make the quilt for my friend's mother. And I feel like that, that moment of her generosity, I thought was so moving that I realized that this quilt needed to be for the person who'd actually lost the most and then when I met her I I was able to meet my my friend's mother and um, met her with these other women from their family and it it was so clear that this family is so based around giving 
they all showed up with armfuls of gifts for me with saffron from Iran. I hadn't even done anything for them yet, right? And they just, they came with this outpouring of love of you're going to do this for our family. We, we already have a hundred little ways to thank you. So I, I, that, that comes to my mind when you bring up the word gift and gifting and, and the fact that my friend just sat there and knew, oh, uh, this quilt isn't for me. This quilt is for someone else. Well, to, to quote Foxfire, a quilt is something human. It is. Oh, it is. It is a relationship made into a textile. Mm-hmm. I got two stories I want to share with you about the idea of giving quilts. One of them is about a year ago, somebody named Claire living in Brooklyn reached out to me and says, will you make a quilt for my husband who's about to turn 40? I said, no mm. problem. And so Claire <laughs> gathered all these fabrics from, you know, his various family members and friends, all been unbeknownst to her, to her partner, mm. mailed them to me and put that beautiful quilt together. It's gorgeous. But while I was working on this quilt and as we were having, you know, several conversations as I normally do as we're making quilts together, um, I came to find out that Claire recently gotten a cancer diagnosis mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. she, she's young, you know, and we, she just, that was always mm-hmm. just kind of operating in the background, you know? And when I finished the quilt, I got the quilt top done. I showed her the picture. Was, she thought it was beautiful. But she didn't live long enough to see the whole quilt made. Mm. And it dawned on me over time, you know, talking with Claire, that she wasn't making this quilt for her partner's mm. 40th birthday. She knew she only had so many days left. Yeah, she was yeah. thinking in her own, what I imagine was the darkest time for her, mm-hmm. of the someone she loved so much and wanted them to have a quilt, of their life together, yeah. of their memory of their families together. That's the power of a quilt. You can't get that out of a blanket. No. Oh, what a wise woman. Mm. The other one I want to share with you is I was working on another memory quilt because you know, there's a lot of power in memory quilts. This one family commissioned three different quilts. And I was going to try to get to them for the holidays, but I just couldn't. I, you know, it's a lot of quilts. Yeah. It's a lot of quilts. And so I, I, I cranked out for them real fast these three little tiny quilts, ornaments. You know, I was like, okay, it's the holidays. Folks like to hang pretty things around, so I'll make these three little ornaments, and I'll send them in lieu of the quilts. A few weeks later, I heard back that they so appreciated the, quilt, the tiny quilts, they wanted 20 more. <laughs> I said, what are you going to do with all these quilts? They said, well, we already gave away the other ones. I said, you gave them away. You gave them away. <laughs> and this was a magic moment for me, Jess, because here are these people who are grieving <laughs> deeply. Yep. Yeah. So deeply that they felt they needed these quilts to wrap up in. And they are giving away this object of comfort. The grieving are becoming the healers in doing so. That's magic in a quilt. You can't get that from a blanket. Oh, that's beautiful. So when we talk about quilts and gifts, this is what we're talking about. This is the magic. This is the special power. Mm -hmm. I've been digging through the... um... Quilt Alliance's Oral History Archive, which is such a beautiful resource, especially just to listen to quilters' voices. And there's one quilter, because I I think we often as quilters speak about inheritance and, you know, 
passing down quilts through generations. And, you know, there's a lot of giving quilts around particular life moments like births or weddings or, you know, these things. And and I've been thinking about a lot because I don't have children. And I've been thinking a lot about where I see my quilts going in the future and where I see my quilts going when they go also to my friends who don't have children or don't want to have children. And I was reading this one interview with a quilter. I think the interview, you know, was was done in the early 2000s when she was quite a elderly woman and she's talking things about making a quilt and and then we get to the end of the interview and the interviewer kind of says oh is there anything else you'd like to say you know the ultimate ending interview question any any little bits you want to add and suddenly the floodgates open and this woman is like oh I have something to say and she starts telling the story about how she was diagnosed with a chronic illness and she has no children and she couldn't maintain her job because of her chronic illness and that what she does is quilt. And at the very end of telling the story about what quilts mean to her and what it means to be able to make quilts, she says, my quilts are a testament that I was here. And that word, ever since I read that interview, that word testament is just ringing in my ears. It makes me think of when I'm working on memory calls, especially, I love looking for what I call the footprints of life, but I might switch it over to testaments now because I like that. (laughs) Such a good word. But when people give me clothes that have been worn and they have been lived in, I love finding those moments that demonstrate how our physical presence on this planet has altered Mm. the physical nature of the clothing. Yes. Yes. And so I think of, for example, um, sometimes I'll see shirts that were worn outside a lot. So the shoulders are bleached. That is a testament to hours in the garden or hours on the beach or wherever they may have been. I think of stains. I think of meals that families had. I think of rips. I think of a worn out right elbow, but not a worn out left elbow because they always (laughs) leaned a certain way. All of these things are testaments that that person was here. And I think by including those in, in memory quilts, like I often do, it, it's a validation that this person, yes, lived, yes, had an effect, and yes, continues to have an effect mm. on those they loved and those who love them back. Yeah. No, there's a real intimacy in that. And a tangibleness. I, I feel like you said this lately, too, about... um. Yeah, you had this beautiful turn of phrase about materials changing you and you changing materials in this loop. And I think my art historian brain is like, absolutely, that's that's what it's all about. Like the material substrate of the things we touch every day, the jacket we put on every day, the flexibility of quilts to take all of that in always kind of amazes me. I think that was what I was always also really struck by when I made this memory quilt of the clothing that I was given was very, very vibrant, very colorful, lots of different patterns, florals. And they really sat and, and, and spoke with my friend's mother about what, what did she want in the quilt? What was the most important thing? The, the clothing had taken a while to get to me because it had needed to be mailed from another country and and you know she had folded it all so carefully and I remember just walking home from this meeting with her hugging this this bundle of perfectly folded pieces of clothing to my chest and 
thinking, how am I going to encompass what this quilt needs to encompass? And then I realized that everything that she needed the quilt to be was already in that clothing, right? It was already the material substrate. And my job was just to pick up those bits of testaments and arrange them in a way that could hug her back and could hold her back. And that was all I was doing. And and then the quilt just kind of flowed. I found a photograph of Nagar kissing her mother and she's wearing this beautiful headscarf wrapped around her. And, and as soon as I saw the photograph, I remembered a story my friend had told about this scarf and looking for the scarf in her flat. And, and this, the, the scarf has these sort of starburst patterns on it that was the same as this shirt that I had in the stash of her clothing. And, and somehow seeing how cloth could work to mimic a photograph like became my access point to that and felt like okay I can I can step back from this and just let the fabric be what it was always going to be I'm so glad you said that I think that's so many folks have asked me when they're thinking about doing a memory quilt something along the lines of how do I do this I'm afraid I'll mess it up yeah I was afraid I was going to mess it up (laughs) Sure. I mean, that, that's natural human response, isn't it? You're looking at this piece of significant cloth, sacred fabric, and you're like, there's no going back. There will never be any more of this if I, quote, mess this mm-hmm. up. But what you just said is so enlightening, that everything that the mother needed from this quilt was already in mm-hmm. the fabric. So as long as you're working with a good heart and good intention, that will remain in the fabric and it will make its way back to the recipient. Yeah. And I think that's really important for folks who think about doing some kind of memory work like that to, to keep in mind, you got that good heart. You can't mess this up. The magic's already in the fabric. Yeah. You don't need to provide it. No, your, your hands are just a frame. They're just moving things into place. That's right. Jess, it seems like this might be a good time. Could you tell us the story of the student who came up to you after class? Yeah. You know, I was teaching this week in a friend's art practice class at Williams College, and this very thoughtful student asked a question after my lecture about how we think of ourselves as quilters and what we connect to. And I, and it's it's been really stuck with me this week because she essentially asked, what if I'm a quilter and, and I don't come from a family of quilters. I don't come from a lineage or a legacy of quilters. And I'm finding that this practice is really important to me and I'm making quilts. And she, I think, essentially asked in a more poetic way than I'm going to right now, how do I find my belonging if I don't come to quilting with a family lineage? I really want to hear your thoughts on this, Zach, because you're someone who creates such an incredibly warm and thoughtful space in any of the kind of virtual rooms that I've seen you walk into, I always feel that from you. And I think, I feel like as quilters, we spend a lot of time celebrating, you know, our family lineages or the older women mostly in our families or older people in our families who quilted. And and all of that is well and good. And I'm a historian. I think speaking about the past and speaking about you know, the past is the future. How you speak about the past is how you're going to live. So I am all for that. But I, I wonder as quilters if we also need to speak more about kinship right now and and how you begin a tradition if you know you're the first. 
Do you begin a tradition? I don't know, but I think it has something to do with immediately imagining yourself in a constellation. You know, like, like I'm saying, like the past, the future, the present, like the, these things are not disconnected from each other. And I think like we've been talking tradition, testament, sturdiness, those things are all about having a wider view than yourself. Yes, it is. And, and, and speaking to your student to ask you that question, it makes me think that quilting has cultural context. Quilting has social history. There's zero denying it. Yeah. But my first pass on answer might be something that like, that while all that is true, quilting is also a matter of the heart and an expression of the spirit, something that every human possesses, right? And so even if you don't have that directly in your family and your family history, you do have the desire to make something beautiful to express something about your time here on this planet. And if quilting feels like the most naturally resonating way to do that, then game on. The quilting yeah. tent is very big. We got, we got room for you. Come on in. It's a tent. It's not some fort. You know what I mean? Like just walk in any size you want to come on in. <laughs> now it's brave to start something. Isn't it though? It's brave to be the first. I want to leave it right there. Mm. Is that okay with you? Perfect. How's your quilt coming? Oh, it's good. Mm, I've uh, almost finished the lines going in one direction on this top. This, you know, sometimes I put my quilts on my quilter's frame, but often, you know, at the end of the day, I like to sit, um, you know, at my table or on my couch and talk to my partner and quilt. Another vote in favor of hand sewing. You can take it anywhere you want to go. Well, I am within an inch of finishing Ooh. this binding for this entire quilt. Ooh. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick my needle in the corner right there so I can look you in the eyes and say thank you very much, Jess. Thank you. I really appreciate you sharing today. Thank you for having me, Zach. If you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did, I'm wondering if you'll rate and review this show so other people can find Seamside and learn more about the inner work of fabric. I'd really appreciate it. And you might also be interested in checking out the zine that I make after these conversations. I sit and ruminate and reflect about different things that came up, put them into this cute little printable, foldable zine. You can stick it in your back pocket and take it anywhere. So there's a link for that in the show notes if you like. And as always, thank you for listening. I appreciate your time. You know, we'll be sitting and sewing again before too long here on Seamside. Take care, sew something good. <laughs>